Dwayne, you may have overplayed the hair thing, if that's all we've got going for good looks. I, I never rely on that. Uh, what a privilege it is uh, for me today to be with you, to join with you in this summer series uh, put together, these 10 sermons called The Means of Grace, God's Generous Care for Our Souls. I'm uh, bringing message number eight in the uh, grand scheme of things, uh, but the message I bring to you uh, has been uh, very heavy on my heart uh, for the last three months, and I'm looking forward to doing it. I do have a rather unusual confession to make as a guest preacher where I really only know a handful of people uh, in this church, uh, and the confession is, I have no intention as the guest speaker today to open with a peppy story or to try to draw you in with a unique testimony about me or my life or, or, or something gripping uh, to set the stage. And I'm absolutely sure that in doing that, as a guest speaker, I'm breaking some unwritten rule of guest speaking. Yes, I'm, I'm very convinced I'm doing that. But here's the, real, here's the reason why. I'm not in that headspace right now. Why? Because the world has gone mad. It doesn't matter how you look at it. I mean, the post-pandemic fatigue and fear that we all still endure, war in Europe and the threat of war in many other places, an economy giving all of us heartburn, division and hatred and suspicion, wildly manipulated by the media, accurately or not, both in the secular world and within the church. And this all is just a blanket that is covering what's going on in the lives of individuals like you, the deep pain uh, so many are experiencing today. Addictions, family divisions, broken marriages, disoriented youth, Political corruption, church leadership failure. I'm sorry, but from where I'm standing re right now, all I see is madness. What in the world is going on? It's exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting. We all feel it. Not a, not a single one of you here isn't feeling it on some level. And the one thing, the one thing that I want to do this morning is I want to get your eyes off the madness and onto the one who is in perfect control of the madness. Because that's what we need today. His name is Jesus the Messiah. That's our problem, though. Especially for us who are Christ followers. Believers, you know, we say that. We say, oh yeah, that's what I'm doing. I, I get my eyes off of, of the madness and I look at Jesus, check. And then what do we do? We go obsess somehow uh, on our iPhones or on the media at nighttime or whatever thing you're obsessing on. And even though we've, we've told ourselves we've, you know, got our eyes onto Jesus, what we do is we have start obsessing again. And then we go into this cycle of fear and despair or even sin. So can I just reintroduce you to Jesus this, uh, this morning? You might want to call this just Jesus 101 for a few moments. Because he is so relatable. 
You look at his life instantly, you're shocked into the reality that there's no one like him. Yeah, we can talk uh, in many sermons about the radical teaching claims of Jesus. I mean, here's an example. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. I could list a hundred of those claims, all wonderful messages. But it's more than that. Look at his life and it will wake you up to the fact that whatever pain and mess going on in your life, whatever thing that you can feel so deeply that it's distracting you, Jesus can relate. Frankly, the majority of the world right now, the majority of the Christians in the world um, right now can relate. When you consider the, his difficult upbringing as a child, he had to flee uh, to Egypt as a refugee for safety reasons. When he returned and he grew up in a, an obscure town in the north end of, of Israel where the respectable Jews down south considered the wrong side of the tracks. As a youth, he probably had to take on his deceased father's business just to put food on the table. He was deprived, therefore, of a higher religious education, which would have given him some kind of social standing in society. No privilege, no connections anywhere. He took on emotional pain the way you and I do. I mean, his parents misunderstood him most of the time. His broader family thought he was insane, didn't believe in him. He was shredded to tears when his best friend, Lazarus, died. He also had enemies. This guy, this guy, when you look at him, you're like, how could anyone not... He had enemies who hated him, who constantly slandered him, who accused him uh, falsely, even uh, saying, suggesting that he was possessed by the devil. And then let's take a look at the posse of disciples around him. His disciples didn't understand the heart of his mission half the time. One of them regularly stole from him, um, and his closest confidant on the team, Peter, vehemently denied knowing him on the very night that he was crucified or, or the night before he was crucified. And yet, despite all of those disadvantages, Jesus was a man of action whose life changed the world. We see him doing spiritual warfare with the evil one in the desert for 40 days. He's driving out evil spirits in several cases, healing various diseases and physical deformities. He is known for his unprecedented teaching in synagogues, homes, and wherever large crowds uh, would follow him to. The people all were amazed and said, who teaches with this kind of authority? Unlike anyone else, he calms a hurricane. He raises a dead girl to life. He miraculously feeds 5,000 people who had no food. He walks on water in such an unearthly manner. His own disciples thought he was a ghost. But what grips me today is, is not all of that. Some of you are wondering, where are you leading to with this? I'm, I'm leading to this. What grips me today is his heart. The heart of Jesus is the heart of one who is willing to go to rescue the one that no one else cares about. He's willing to go to the other side. I've titled the message, The Other Side, for that very reason. He's willing to go to the other side. 
It's a phrase I actually took right out of the scriptures, Mark 4, 35. So if you have your Bibles with you today and you want to follow along, I'm going to take you through the text, whether it's your physical Bible or whether you're a, a digital Bible person. Um, we're going to walk through it together. I have some things I want to unpack. And I want your gaze on him today to help you sort of experience another means of grace, another channel of, of, of which God supplies you with what you need to get through this life. And today that means of grace is going to be hope and grace and to see yourself in a new light and him in a new light to fight the madness. I believe, and I'm asking you to believe right now as you're sitting here today, to ask the Lord, what do you have for me today? Father, speak to me. Speak, point in, press in by the Spirit on that area where you know I'm getting my eyes on the madness too much. So I have four things today. Very quickly, let's start with this first thing. If you're taking notes, um, you can just jot this down. The other side is central to Jesus' heart. So the story starts out, Mark 4, 35, um, with Jesus. He's on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee. I believe I have a map up there that'll give you just an idea of uh, the Sea of Galilee and the area of Galilee. He's on the west side. And he says, on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, referring to his disciples, let's go across to the other side. Now, the other side was probably a common expression in the sort of west end of, uh, of Galilee, where there were a lot of Jews, uh, it was entirely um, or mostly Jewish. It was, the other side was probably a negative expression referring to uh, uh, the, you know, uh, you know, the opposite of our side. So the other side was the wrong side of the tracks. Our side was where respectable Jews who followed the Torah, who followed the law of Moses lived. But the other side, the other side was where the pagan Greeks and the Roman pigs, as they were called uh, at that time, the people uh, that were considered unclean, that's where they lived. We don't go there. It's the other side of the tracks. It's the wrong side of town. This region uh, kind of has two names. Sometimes it's, depending on your study Bible notes, if you have one, it's sometimes called the region of the Gerasenes. Other, other times it's called the Decapolis. Uh, I have a map there that just shows you the Decapolis in green compared to Galilee and where Jesus took everyone. It's called the Decapolis because it had 10 little Greek city-states that all kind of ran independently as their own little uh, private governments. You might want to think of, uh, if you're a history buff, Athens or Sparta, uh, something like that, but these weren't nearly as fancy as those. Uh, but bottom line, it was the other side of town where a Jew just didn't go. Now, it's nighttime. There's a gentle breeze out. It's warm. It's the end of an enjoyable day, really, on so many levels. I have a feeling, and it's not in the text, but I just have this sense that the disciples kind of jumped at the idea and thought, man, this is great, a pleasure cruise on, on the Sea of Galilee with Jesus. We can take a little break from the heavy ministry we've been doing lately. I'm all in. The text says in verse 37, though, 
that this is what happened. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. <laughs> and they woke him, and they said to him, and if you'd like to underline in your Bibles, just underline this phrase. I'm going to come back to it in a moment. Teacher, do you not care? Do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. The storm literally just stopped. And then he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And their reaction to what they just witnessed? Verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, I wish I could do an entire sermon on just that, that little story right there. I have one, <laughs> but I'm not going to do that today. But I, I'm using it to set up where we're headed on the other side. But I will say this, and I, I just want to speak to you here as a pastor, that some of you, have been in places of pain, places where everything feels like it's just falling apart, and you've done the exact same thing as the disciples, and you've said, Jesus, do you not care? Jesus, do you not see that my life is literally falling apart right in front of me? Where are you? We've been praying for two, three, four years, no change, no encouragement. Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? And you know what, in those moments, and I've been there, I've been there, I'm with you. I'm not preaching at you here. We are losing a sense of the power of Jesus when we get to that place. We've lost it. And that's why we need every week to be reminded of it. And because of that, the madness going on right now is even more controlling. Now, if you want to understand the heart of Jesus really uh, clearly um, about seeking and saving the undesirable, there's a parable. I just want to read it quickly to you. It really sums it up. It sums up uh, the heart of going to the other side. Um, you don't have to jump there. I'll read it. But if you want to make reference in your notes, it's Matthew 18, 12. And this is, the par uh, this is the parable. Jesus says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out to search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth. He will rejoice over it more than over the 99 that didn't wander away. In the same way, it is not my heavenly father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. Now, what happens next in the story puts the parable into action and shows us what the other side is on this day for Jesus. Here's the second thing. Jot this down. The other side is truly the realm of helplessness. Look at verse five, chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, 
And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. You can just write demon there. Um, He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, uh, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. I'm telling you, this scene starts out like a Stephen King novel. I mean, (laughs) for the disciples, (laughs) just imagine the emotional state of the disciples who just lived through the storms uh, event, now arriving on the boat thinking, okay, maybe we can just set up camp and have some hot dogs and chill for a while, and this is what they get? By the way, uh, in uh, those days, uh, it was common um, for um, people to have the de- their bed, uh, their dead buried in tombs carved into the hillsides, and there are significant hillsides on the sea of, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee where many of these cave-like crypts uh, are. Archaeologists have discovered them. These tombs were usually large enough that technically, um, someone like this could go and and make a little dwelling and hide and live. Now, he said, the text says he has an unclean spirit, and I, I told you just to think of that as demons. Uh, demons are often called unclean spirits in scriptures. Demons can get a foothold in the lives of people who cultivate sin. Now, maybe you're sitting here and thinking, and this is so common in the West, you know, I just don't buy this demon stuff. I mean, it makes sense that they'd write it that way, given that this is an ancient manuscript, because that's, I mean, they weren't educated. They didn't have science back then. So it makes sense that the writers would get that. I get that. But, but, you know, in those days, everything they couldn't explain was attributed to evil spirits or demons. So, you know, this story isn't really sinking in. Now, maybe that's the case for some ancient writers, but I got to tell you something, not so for the Bible. In fact, the Bible's understanding of the difference between unclean spirits and mental disorders, if that's what you're thinking, is very clear and very nuanced. For example, Matthew 4, 24 actually shows that it understands the difference. It says, Uh, news about Jesus spread and people brought to him all the sick, the demon possessed, the lunatics, which is kind of a uh, not so great word these days for what uh, the literal meaning there is mentally ill and paralyzed. So the scriptures know how to differentiate between an unclean spirit and mental illness or mental disease. The biblical writers knew how to differentiate between the diseases of the body and the mind and demons. Now, we're not told in Scripture how this particular man became demonized. How did he become so controlled by demons that he was a cutter? How did he become so controlled that society booted him out and left him and he became a raving monster? Was it 
the result of being involved in pagan religious practices, perhaps. Perhaps he had abandoned and his life at some point to complete wickedness and just, that was it, I don't know. But here's what I will tell you. The result of this was for this, for this guy, he lost it all. He lost his home, his family, his friends. He lost his decency. He ran around a cemetery naked every single day. He lost his self-control. He lived like a wild beast. He was cutting himself. He had no peace. He had no purpose for living. Yeah, society tried its best with whatever resources it had, whatever programs it was running at those times to try to address it. But the best they could do was chain him and throw him outside the city so he wouldn't be a problem or an embarrassment. And I would say even today, with all of its wonderful scientific and technological achievements that have happened in the last even 100 years, even today, society is not equipped to deal with the problems of the spirit and the soul. Now, I know there are some true believers here, legitimate Christ-worshipping, Christ-loving believers wondering, as I'm talking, you know, What's the takeaway for me here on, on this demon thing? I mean, I love Jesus. I have the Holy Spirit. Todd's been teaching about that for years. I've been, I know this stuff. But I sometimes battle with despair and discouragement. I sometimes get off track. I sometimes stumble into sin. Are you saying that Satan can possess me? Now, without an hour of teaching that I would love to do, um, I'm just going to uh, just straight up tell you No. I'll ask you to trust me on that one. No, for true Christ followers, but, no, but, here's the but. There are warnings in Scripture about not allowing the evil one to influence your life, resulting from choices that you make. Perfect example, 1 Corinthians 10.20, Paul says, What pagan sacrifice they offer to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Okay, Here's a quote uh, from a theologian I like reading, Wayne Grudem. Just listen to him on this topic. He says the following. In the lives of Christians, the emphasis of the New Testament is not on demons, but on the sin that remains in the believer's life. Note this, though. Nevertheless, we should recognize that sinning does give a foothold for some kind of demonic influence in our own lives. Thus, Paul could say, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and, note this, Give no opportunity to the devil, Ephesians 4.26. Do, do you see the warning to believers? He goes on to say, if we have areas of continuing sin in our lives, then there are weaknesses and holes in our breastplate of righteousness. And these are areas in which we are vulnerable. That's why at church, when you hear the preacher calling you, to bow your knee before the Lord, to repent, to turn from sin. As a believer, that's the invitation out of giving the devil a foothold in your life. 
Now, back to the story. I know that there are a lot of questions about this story so far. I mean, uh, is all evil and sin Satan's doing? How do demons influence or oppress believers? How does a believer put on the spiritual armor of Ephesians 6 and take their stand against the devil? How should believers pray for others with potentially demon oppression in their lives? Those are all great questions. But I want you to hear more importantly this thing, that behind... Behind those questions, the answer is your comfort and security lies in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Colossians 2.14. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way. He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. The other side is central to Jesus' heart because it is the opposite for Satan's plan for all of us. Now, here's my question to you this morning, and ponder it for a bit. What is the other side for you? Or maybe I should say, where is the other side for you? Or maybe I should say, who is the other side for you? If it is true that the other side, the realm of hopelessness, is central to Jesus' heart, then it must be central to my heart. What is it for you? Perhaps it's a a ministry that God's been burdening you with to invest time or resources in. Maybe it's a region of the city that you feel drawn to do something in as as the light reflecting Jesus Christ. Or maybe it's a particular person that God's been burdening you with that is trapped in the realm of hopelessness. It could be an area of the globe, even. God is calling you to... um, invest your life into. God could be right now fashioning you, your heart, your family to prepare you to move to the other side. Are you open to it? Be sensitive to him if you sense him say as he did to his disciples. Come on with me. Let's go over to the other side. Here's the next thing I want you to note. Write this down. The other side reveals the power and majesty of Jesus Christ. Now, this is one of the means of grace for us. This is one of the ways we strengthen our faith in a world of madness by looking clearly and marveling again at the power and majesty and authority of the of Messiah for our strength. Now, what I'm about to read you, this is the most vivid description in all of the Bible of an exorcism. Look at verse 6. But when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran down and fell uh, down before him. Verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said... Quote, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, 
do not torment me. For he was Jesus saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. That word legion, um, it was a very common word. It uh, it actually was the largest unit of the Roman army. About 6,000 men was a legion. Um, Whether he had exactly 6,000 demons, I don't know. Uh, What I do know is uh, he had a lot. This is a big problem. This guy was significantly trapped and under power. Do you notice there in what I read, though, that um, isn't it interesting how unclean spirits, demons, have a very biblical picture and understanding of who Jesus is? Even though the disciples and the others still were wrestling with who is this guy that we're following, I don't fully understand his mission. The demons understood who they were dealing with. I think it's significant that they, he, they, fall down in front of Jesus, but I want you to very clearly understand, they were not doing that in worship. This is no worship we're watching here. Okay? They were doing this with a grudging awareness of who they were standing in front of, of the power that they were confronted with. I mean, I mean, James wrote in J- James 2 verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the, believings, even the demons believe and shudder. Friends, Believing in the existence of Jesus is not the same thing as saving faith. Okay? Believing that Jesus exists, that's, that's not what saving, redeeming salvation looks like. It's not the kind of trusting, relying, worshiping love that places yourself into his hands Let me ask you today, do you know him? Are you one of his? Have you ever in your life said to Jesus, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, receive me. Jesus, cleanse me from my unrighteousness. Jesus, I'm putting all my hope all my trust in you and you alone. I'm banking everything on you. You're my Lord and King. I bow the knee to you. Have you ever done that? Because that is how a Christ follower begins his journey with Jesus. What I find fascinating as I look at the way the demons on their knees are before him is how rebellious they are. I mean, the the rebellion of hell here is astounding to me. I'm gonna give you three, three, three reasons why I see this. First, the response. What have you to do with me? Is what he was saying. 
What have you to do with me, Jesus? A literal Greek translation is, what to you and me? Um, a more street translation, a gangster translation would be, you talking to me? You, you, you're on my turf? It's amazing Jesus didn't obliterate them right there. Here's the second thing I find really, really fascinating. Back then, um, you may not know this, but uh, most cultures had a belief that if you knew the, f- the full name of someone, the full name, that you could, if you were involved in the right sort of religious practices, you could invoke power over them. By the way, this superstitious belief still exists in many cultures around the world today. But we see that when they say, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? That's the the full title they're trying to use to gain power over him. And it's done in in other places in scripture. I'll give you a great example. Uh, There's another place, a demonized man is confronted by Jesus. uh, And and the, the demon refers to Jesus as Jesus, the holy one of God. This isn't worship. This isn't respect. This is an attempt at control, desperately. Here's the third thing, and this is the, this is the kicker for me here in this story. The demon actually tries to reverse the process and exercise Jesus himself, okay? You're like, where are you getting that? Watch this. He says, Jesus, son of the most high God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now that word adjure is an interesting word. We don't use it often, but basically it means I order you. I order you. Here's the demon in front of Jesus Christ saying, in the name of God, I order you, don't. You know, in in ancient literature around the world, there are so many stories of exorcisms of a hostile spirit and other stories Um, And the one thing that they all have in common across all the cultures of humanity is that the one person that doing the so-called exorcism is really working up a sweat, calling on all sorts of names and deities and powers, and then there's rites and sacrifices and a whole bunch of things going on. Um, And that's what this demon is trying to do uh, in, 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 in calling on the Most High God to make Jesus go away. But here's the cool thing about Jesus. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus just says, go. Just like he said to the storm, peace be still. Look at his power. He doesn't work up a sweat. He doesn't roll up his sleeves and engage in some life-draining battle. He simply says, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. He doesn't call on a higher power. Why? Because he is the higher power. He is power itself. That's astounding. They actually, according to Matthew, begged Jesus not to be tortured 
in Matthew's account, it says, don't torture us before our, our appointed time. Um, I don't know if you know this, but, um, and I know you, we're doing a series on Reve- you're doing a series on Revelation. I don't think you've made it to Revelation 20 yet, but uh, uh, the Bible says that at the end of the world, the devil and his demons will be thrown into the lake of fire. That's Revelation 20, verse 10. The demons know their fate. They hoped that Jesus would not send them to their fate before their ultimate time. So they're buying time. They're, that's what they're doing. They're buying time, looking for anything desperate to get out. Now, I, I want you to imagine if you're one of the disciples who's not inner circle, like Peter, James, and John, but you're like Bartholomew, okay? And so you've been traveling with Jesus, but you haven't been on, in, in all the inner circle meetings. You've just watched Jesus quell a hurricane, a weather system. You've watched Jesus now deal with the demonic. Your nerves are a little frayed. You're also recalling hearing him preach John 5, 27, where Jesus said that the father had given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. And a time was coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I just want to be honest with you, and I'm going to tell you this, that um, knowing that there is an appointed time where Jesus Christ is going to right all wrongs, where he will deal with all the evil that's ever been committed and yet not dealt with, not by his standards, knowing that he, that this appointed time is real, it's true, it's coming, we're headed for it, knowing that is sometimes in my darkest days, the only thing I've held on to when I can't handle the evil injustices of this world. Do you relate Jesus promised there will be an end, a reckoning, and that he will directly be in charge of that. The ultimate justice of Jesus is a core part of Orthodox Christianity. Verse 13, notice this, it just simply says, so he gave them permission. (laughs) So he gave them permission. He just wills it to happen. Matthew says he just commanded them, go. What happened? Verse 13. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed, in, rushed down the steep bank uh, into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, there are a lot of questions about pigs here I'm not going to answer. Honestly, I actually checked several commentaries and no one really seems to have a great pithy way of explaining the why of it all. Um, But it's in all four Gospels. So the Holy Spirit has that unusual detail there uh, for a reason. And honestly, that is just one of those examples of how the Scriptures, the Gospels, are different than myths and legends that have been written over the years. They include these unique, uh, out-of-the-blue, odd details that only a historian would uh, capture. 
Now, if you ask me, what do I think about it? This is my opinion. Very fallible opinion, but my opinion is simply that Jesus was saying, no more human hosts for you today, go. But that's not what I want you focusing on anyways. Look at Jesus. What do you do with someone like that? That's my question to you today. For some of you here, you might consider yourself a skeptic, or you may not know you're a skeptic, but are a skeptic, but there's, you're just something about Christianity, you're, you're just watching it from afar, and you're... I would just ask you this. If it's at least possible that he exists today, what do you do with a power and a spiritual authority of this magnitude? I'm going to tell you what your two options are, okay? I'll boil it down for you. There's two options. Either you choose to live outside the realm of his lordship, his kingship over you, and therefore, by default, you choose to live freedom, your freedom, your autonomy. You're your king of your own life. You're independent. The Bible says you're still going to face them. at the end of your life. As you know, we're not here forever. And all that you'll have to bring before this king is your resume, your record of accomplishment. How do you feel about it so far? How will it hold up? Is that what you're banking on? Is that what you're placing your faith in? Because trust me, that's faith. Or, here's the other option. You choose Christ's forgiveness and his loving leadership over your life. But know this. Jesus never gives anyone the option of simply taking Jesus and putting him on the shelf with all the other idols that they're worshiping. Never does he give you the option of doing that met so many people who are like, yeah, I'll grab Jesus along with all the other things and gods that I worship because, hey, the more the merrier. Can't have too many gods. Some of you here, unbelievers, or you would say, I'm not sure where I stand. Uh, um, you're afraid. You're afraid. The world's scaring you now. You're afraid of what's out there, what might actually be in the supernatural. Perhaps you've been involved in fortune-telling or horoscopes or tarot cards or the occult or witchcraft or occult or ceremonies to contact the dead or anything that reflects or rejects the worship of the one called Jesus. Here's, here's what I want to say to you today. In love, I say this. Jesus stands in the same position of authority and freedom for you, just like he did when he stood before the man on his knees, bound by the legion of demons. And he offers you freedom. He offers you life. But understand this. Outside of Jesus, there is no protection. There is no true freedom. There is no spiritual power. The enemy exists. He prowls around like a lion seeking to destroy. 
Isn't there a side of you deep down inside that wants to embrace someone like this? That wants to embrace the one who had such authority and power? Isn't there a side of you that longs for fulfillment by the one who can actually generate awe and wonder in your life? You know, as a pastor, I've talked with a lot of believers, Christ followers, awesome people, who have also struggled with a fear of the enemy for various reasons. It's just been a stumbling block for them. I just want to remind you of something. Remember that the demons had to ask for permission to do anything. Just like Satan had to ask God for permission for permission to sift Job. Satan has no final authority over your life. He can only do what God allows for a season, what God permits for a season. I want you to take that fear, whatever it is, and your anxiety to God in prayer and worship him for the fact that he promised that once he's got you in his hand, nothing can take you out of his hand. Nothing. Because he's a sovereign God, and that's his sovereign will. And we can fall into the ditch sometimes, and in that time of hurt and pain and worry, we doubt, we cry to him, we wonder if he's ignored him. We are the, uh, listen, believer, we are the most secure people in the world. Because the security is not based on the economy. Your security is not based on who's, in power politically this season or the next season or the one after that. Your, your security is not based on your T4 form, your RSPs, your retirement plan. Your security is only found in one person and that's him. The one who said he cares for you, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. That's where I'm standing today amidst the madness. Here's the final thing, fourth thing today. The other side will respond one way or another. Notice verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told in the city and in the country what had happened. And people came to see all that had happened. And they came to see Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Oh man, for this... Man, what a picture of grace, eh? Do you realize that by the end of the book of Mark, many chapters later, we're going to see Jesus exchanging places with this man. At the end of the book of Mark, Jesus is the one who is naked and stripped. At the end of the book of Mark, it is Jesus crying out on the cross, bleeding. At the end of the book of Mark, it is Jesus who is driven into the tombs. No, into the tomb. That is how Jesus dealt with evil. Because when he went to the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice, what Jesus did beyond the physical torture was to absorb God's wrath against evil and sin in my place, in your place, for all who put their faith in him. That 
is called the Great Exchange. What a hope. That's the heart of the gospel, the cross. And listen, it's only when you see the cost of what he did, seeing Jesus willing to be naked and crying out and bleeding and driven into the tomb for you, that you can stand strong in this madness. And he did this to provide you with freedom from bondage, to provide you with eternal life in spite of all the things you've done wrong. That's how much he loves you. It's only when you see that cost. See, when you see that cost, you are reminded how much he loves you, which is why you will hear songs sung and sermons preached about the cross. It's meant to stir up your affections. It's to show you your value to him. You don't have to look at your career, your politics, your relationships, or anything else and say, I need that to know who I am. No, you don't. You know who you are when you know who he is and that you know you are his. There are two responses to Jesus in this story. Look at them, verse 15. And they, the people, were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them and what had happened to the demon-possessed man and the pigs, verse 17. And they began to beg Jesus to leave the region. Okay, let's look at these reactions and then I'll wrap this up. The first reaction is the townspeople. They come to the scene. They see the 2,000 dead pigs floating in the uh, water. By the way, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, the economy was just wiped out, the local economy. They see a guy that had been a problem in his right mind sitting beside Jesus. They're tr trying to make sense of it. Now, maybe some were furious with the economic impact. And that's why they asked Jesus to leave. Some may have just been uncomfortable with the fact that this guy now had to move back into town and were like, is he going to drive our real estate prices down? Or maybe it was because they wanted him to go because he looked like a guy that could be a problem. A guy with this kind of power, this kind of authority, he could start changing everything. We don't like change. Whatever it is, They asked him to leave. For sure, Jesus is showing here that all the wealth in the world is not worth one human soul. I imagine Jesus thinking, in order to save a human being to lose a fortune of livestock, so what? Listen, even all the wealth in the world is not, losing your, is not worth losing your soul over. Unfortunately for these people, Jesus did what they asked. He left. There's no biblical account that says he ever came back. Here's the second response, verse 18. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Wouldn't you be doing the same? I'd be like, Jesus, where are you going? I'm following. I just have a, I don't have actually anything, but I have a, I'm coming. Verse 19, and he, Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus wanted him very clearly to know that it had been God that had intervened and that he was God. It's funny, you know, 
of all the three parties that asked Jesus, begged Jesus for something, Jesus only answered two of them with what they asked for. The demons asked uh, to be sent in the pigs. He let them go. The town people asked that he would leave. He left. But the guy he came to save and redeem, he said, no, I want you to stay here. Seems unfair, doesn't it? Until you consider that Jesus knew that this man would be an effective witness to those living in a land with no good news, this Decapolis region who remembered his previous condition and could, could freely attest to the fact that before Jesus, here I was, after Jesus, here I am. And through him, Jesus' ministry would expand into this Gentile region, a region considered unclean. Jesus decided to leave the area with a witness. Verse 20, notice this. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis and how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Here's how I want to wrap up this morning. Jesus crossed over the sea through a storm to go to an unclean area and a dangerous one at that to heal one man and make him whole. That's got to affect you on some level. Sure, we may want to focus on the demons or the pigs or the community's response uh, to Jesus, but the heart and soul of this story is grace and hope. Grace to one so undeserving. Frankly, a man just like me. Undeserving. Remember what Jesus told the man. Tell how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you, and think about your life. As I close today, I leave you with this question. What would you say to that? What has the Lord done for you? And where has he shown mercy for you? Friends, that's the essence of worship. That is the essence of not letting the madness of this world have any power over you. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe of you. We stand in awe of your son. And Lord, I pray just before we continue in worship, Lord, that um, you would uh, release your Holy Spirit to move amongst us. And we want to put ourselves in a position today that you might be pressing in on some area of our lives where we need to bow the knee more, where we need to submit more, where we need to enjoy you more, where we need our affections, the affections of our hearts stirred up more. Don't let us leave here today simply hearing another story and saying, yeah, I got that one. Rather, Lord, let us leave affected by the fact that we've just seen Jesus Christ in action. As we live in a world of madness, as we live in a world which really is the realm of hopelessness, this entire globe. I pray, God, that you would release in us a fearlessness and a courage to go to the other side, knowing you'll be with us, knowing you hold us in the palm of your hands. You are worthy, Lord. 
and we love you.